Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this amazing week just keeps on staying amazing. Today, people, I have a very special guest for you, Merve Emre. That's right. Renowned critic, scholar, contributing writer at The New Yorker, and the new director of the Shapiro Center for Creative Writing and Criticism at Wesleyan University, Merve Emre. Merve is my first ever repeat guest. She appeared on my show a year ago when it had a different name, and I'm going to include a link to that episode in the show notes. Since then, we just became friends. Anyway, in the previous podcast, I interviewed her about some of her tweets. She used to have an incredible Twitter feed, easily one of the all-time great Twitter feeds, back when the Bird app was not a nuclear wasteland. And one of the tweets I interviewed her about was photographed from when she was three years old, which I'm going to include in today's show notes. And I'm also going to include a photo of myself when I was like a young whippersnapper. Just because this signals a new thing for the show, I'm going to start inviting guests if they want to share a photograph of themselves when they were a young whippersnapper, where this is a photograph of Merve. It was in Turkey, three years old, and she's pretty sure her grandmother made that outfit she's wearing, which I think is very cool. Today, we're going to discuss Merve's newest piece in The New Yorker that just came out this week, like three days ago, which is called Mom Rage. It's an appraisal of a book about a concept of mom rage, but that's not really what we get into. We get into the larger phenomenon. This appraisal that we're going to read in The New Yorker becomes this really mesmerizing meditation on parenting and the child-parent relationship. Your child is and is not an extension of yourself. He is both an intimate and a stranger. He imitates you and he rejects you. And it's not always possible to anticipate which gesture is more startling. You can attempt to control what he does to a point but you cannot control what the world does to him or how he responds to it. What we learn from our children is nothing less than our own limitations, our passivity, and our susceptibility when faced with what was once a part of us, but is ultimately other to us. So please join me now as we enter the heart and mind of one of the great writers of our time, Merve Emre. I'm not on social media anymore, but... We miss you. What? We do, man. You had a dope Twitter feed and it is not the same place. I don't know if it's since Musk took over. I did feel like the spirit was meaner. I'm over on Substack now. I'm reading you on there. Your new piece. I always think to myself, who is the least powerful person in the room? And what is the most powerful person in the room doing to ensure the safety of the least powerful? And that stems from my childhood. I thought your piece diagnosed some stuff that's going on in our culture right now where the patriarchy and racism get invoked to justify what I would consider to be not great behavior. You are absolutely right to note that there is every temptation right now to indulge the rhetoric of anti-racism or feminism or disability rights without actually thinking carefully about 
how those dynamics manifest in particular situations. So if I had to characterize the overall approach of the piece, I would simply say that every section of it was trying to measure this distance between the personal situation that was grounding the author's experience of being a parent and then the larger claims that were being made about the social dynamics of being a parent today. And to me, there was a mismatch every step along the way between the particular situation and the more general claims. The second thing I will say is I do feel quite frustrated in general reading the motherhood discourse of the past decade or so and realizing how inattentive a great deal of it is to the child. I do think we need to recognize that children are people. And I think we recognize that they are people. You can also recognize that there are situations in which you don't like them, in which you are angry with them, in which they rub you the wrong way. And that right. has anything to do with a particular kind of interpersonal relationship that is transpiring at that moment and nothing to do or little to do with capitalist patriarchy. So the impetus to acknowledge that children are people is to make available to parents the right level of analysis, which to my mind is often more about a set of interpersonal feelings like shame and right. anger and frustration, not primarily and maybe not even secondarily about these larger social structures. I would really be curious to know what any individual who professes rage as the central feature of their parenting experience, what was their own experience as a child? I would be very curious to understand that too. And I would also be very curious for a parent who sees rage in their child to reflect on what the relationship might be between that child's rage and the parent's own rage. I do think we reproduce the patterns that we grew up with. And I think it often takes an act of great will and self understanding to break yes. patterns. And part of the argument I wanted the piece to make was that kind of recalibration of one's relationship to one's children becomes impossible when the language you use to describe yourself, your child, your relationship with them, the world is imprecise or is clouded by defective metaphor and moral cliche. I picked up on that. You quoted an excerpt from the book, and there's a litany of reasons that author uses to justify rage and admittedly pandemic. My heart broke for children and parents during that time, what they were put through. Our culture did not prioritize the well-being of children. But nevertheless, she cites the mistreatment of Black citizens by police officers. I get that. I felt that mm. rage about that same issue, but I would not use that as a justification for directing rage at a child. I think this is one of the reasons that the Anne Lamott essay, Mother Rage, the original one from, I think, 1990-something, is, is quite good because I think that essay recognizes that directing that rage towards one's child is a way of mystifying one's own power. And Lamott says something very striking to me. She says, who else could you talk to like this? Else right. tolerate 
being shouted at like this? Who else would tolerate being handled roughly? And the parents who do that to their children do it because they can get away with it, which is, I think, an incredibly important admission that Lamott's essay makes. One thing that doesn't come up in any of the pop psychology or wellness articles about mom rage is that during the pandemic, if moms were more rageful, then, and I'm not saying this is related, children were also experiencing much higher rates of abuse. We know this coming out of the pandemic, that when children weren't in school, when there weren't basic kind of low-grade mechanisms of social surveillance around other people, it made it easier for parents to abuse their children. And having read through all of the websites and articles on mom rage, written not just by this woman, but by other people, I was really shocked that every time the pandemic was brought up, there wasn't that corresponding statistic mentioned of the higher rates of abusive children. None of this is to say that the pandemic wasn't difficult for parents. None of it is to say that capitalism and patriarchy don't create an unjust world for Mm -hmm. people who identify as women. None of this is to say that care work isn't unequally distributed, but it is to say that those observations do not necessarily mean you get a kind of blank check on your treatment of others. And none of that means that you can't also consider, along with the political, the ethical dimensions of how you are interacting with other human beings. To me, it is just ultimately ethical. That's another human. I think we talked about in a previous episode of Tweet describing your sons saying people just want to push them aside like a pigeon. Kids are people. They have very high functioning emotions. And so to put that trauma into a kid, that's the one thing on this earth I'm just go crazy against that. I think another thing that you and I talked about that I think about all the time is what right, if anyone has to write about one's children and how you draw a line between representing ethically and exploiting them. This has been a huge conversation recently that has orbited other kinds of motherhood books. There have been a number of books that have recently come out on momfluencers, how they are profiting from their children, from exposing their children to the clicks and the likes and the gaze of millions of strangers. And I think that anytime anyone sets out to write about one's children, there are a very complicated set of questions that you have to answer. To me, the first and most important question is when my children are old enough to read what I write, how will they feel about it? I was thinking about our previous conversation where I told you that I reached a point with my children where I would ask them before I would tweet anything about them. They were very clear about what they wanted and what they didn't. It did become clear to me when they would say something funny, they would pun in some way that I thought was clever, or they would mock something that I was saying. They would do a version of me. And I would ask them, can I tweet this? And they would say, yes. It then became clear to me that they were trying to think of things to say would gain what I'm sure they perceived of as my approval. And I just thought this is fucked up. 
And I was thinking the reason the Lydia Davis story is in there is in part because at the same time I was working on this piece, I was interviewing her. She has a new book coming out. It's called Our Strangers. And she is not selling it on Amazon. It's only available for purchase through bookshop.org. It is wonderful in all the ways that she is classically wonderful. And I remember before I went up to East Nassau to see her reading a profile of her that had been written in The New Yorker some 10 years ago or so by Dana Goodyear. And there is a pretty extended meditation in there by Davis on how the children are simply off limits. And I read that and I thought, you know what, that's actually the absolute correct principle. And I want to adhere to that. I don't want to break it because one of them says something funny. And Lydia is a principled person. That's one of her principles. Not buying things on Amazon, not selling things on Amazon is another. And I thought you reach a point in your life where it's actually more important to live by a certain set of ethical principle than it is to feel the dopamine rush of one more like. At the beginning of your piece, there's a reference to the photograph that appeared in the first essay in the Times. It's a picture of a woman sitting next to a boy, and you noted a mark on the boy's back. I just wanted in that first paragraph to perform an act of looking closely at this child that wasn't being looked at closely and to think about what it would mean to put into words the reality of little person whose voice we can only access through the voice of his mother. And actually what it reminded me of is in many ways an incredibly unfair comparison, but just the way that I articulated it now makes me think of it. What it reminded me of was Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, where another situation, albeit written in a very different kind of prose style, a fancy prose style, another situation in which we have a child whose personhood is always being occluded and whose voice we are only getting through the voice of Humbert Humbert, the narrator. And if you listen closely to the voice, you will hear suffering in it. It's so easy not to listen closely to it because the narrator is so elaborate and so ornate and so loud and relentless. And I think I say this in the piece, there is something absolutely gripping about the voice in which the mom rage essays are written. I think there's a kind of artlessness and a rawness to them. You quote it at the beginning of the piece. It says, the rage lives in my hands, rolls down my fingers, clenching to fists. I want to hurt someone. I am tears and fury and violence. I personally feel uncomfortable hearing that kind of language in the context of a child. For instance, if a man... If this were a man writing it, you wouldn't be able to ignore the largeness of the parent and the comparative vulnerability of the child. I don't think you'd be able to excuse it either. You don't have the same, oh, but the patriarchy for it. Although you could argue that under the patriarchy, under capitalism, part of the point is that everyone is exploited. It's not just women, but it's men as well. I felt like 96% of the people in the Marine Corps are in the infantry, which is what I went into, which is where a lot of the so-called derelicts and criminals go. We all came from broken homes. And Mm -hmm. I knew for a fact that child abuse was a huge deal with us. And that part of what we were doing there was trying to ensure 
that nobody could hurt us again. Oh, I'm so sorry. That must be incredibly difficult. One time I showed some letters to my therapist that I had written when I was like five, my parents divorced, we were moving. And she said, oh, this is so important. You need to look at what's going on in the way that you were writing. Your hand was shaking in a certain way. And she said, you need to think about that five-year-old. And I tried to be all cool and say, screw that little kid. And she was like, that's the most important thing in you. Like, you have to be directing love at that five-year-old for the rest of your life. Well, this is actually the thing that I thought was better in many ways about the initial mom rage essay than about the book, which was that in the essay, the author is quite cognizant of the fact that she has become a child again, that this is something that sends her back to feeling like a powerless child. I think a different kind of author would have asked why. A different kind of author wouldn't have said, oh, it's because of capitalism or it's because of patriarchy, but would have said, what was it in my past that made me feel powerless like this? And in all fairness, she does do a tiny bit of that and talks in the book a little bit about her relationship with her older brother, which sounds like it was a relationship of great frustration and possibly also physical bullying. But doesn't seem to me to receive nearly the kind of unpacking would deserve. But I do think that's one of the other things that makes the essay so gripping is simply this acknowledgement that actually in this moment of rage, there is a kind of inappropriate equality between the parent and the child. Because even though you might feel the wounds or the vulnerability of that inner three-year-old or five-year-old, you really also can't behave like the three-year-old or the five-year-old. And that seems to me a really important difference that therapy teaches you. My friend Akil Sharma, the writer, he had a not great childhood. It I know, was, I've, read, I've read his book. But he's a father now. He calls me from the playground. We talk about that. This must be really good for him taking care of his daughter is actually helping him. That's really important. I think that one perspective on parenthood that I don't often see and that I tried to gesture toward in the piece is that precisely because parenthood makes us understand our limitations as human beings, it actually allows for a series of ethical challenges. You have to rise to the occasion of being a conscientious parent. And I think that there are people who do that and, and who turn parenting into a very deliberate kind of ethical project. Good book that's coming out by two friends of mine, Anastasia Berg and Rachel Weissman, and it's called What Are Children For? me, that book is the kind of palate cleanser to these other books, in part because it really understands parenting as a kind of ethical question, a philosophical question, and one that is intimately tied to the question, what is life for? Why are we here? Why do we interact with other human beings? What do we want of them? What do we want them to want of us? And that it is in treating parenting as an occasion for those kinds of questions that it becomes a source of intellectual challenge. And it also becomes a source of great joy when you feel like you have some sort of at least preliminary answer to those questions that you can then test out in your actual life. Something I've really learned as a parent is that bad feelings or what the scholar Sian Nye refers to as ugly feelings, incredibly important to feel 
in parenting. I think it is really important to feel shame, to acknowledge shame, because shame, and this is what Eve Sedgwick writes, shame is what allows us to see or to feel the reality of other human beings as a reality are partially responsible for, as a reality that we co-create with them. It's not the only way to feel that, but in parenting, it is one of the most powerful ways to feel that. And and if you think about, and I won't even name him, but a certain ex-president out there, one of his key features is his inability to feel shame about anything. I think people who can't feel shame or who don't want to feel shame are very dangerous. It is incredibly important to have the capacity to feel ashamed of your treatment of someone else because it is a way for you to recognize that other person and recognize your responsibility to or you're obligated to that other person. And to want to evade that is to want to evade the way that you are responsible to someone else in the world. The essence of cruelty. It is the essence of cruelty. And for someone like Eve Sedgwick, at least, who I cite in the piece, when Sedgwick is theorizing shame, the primary model that she's thinking of is the mother-child relationship. And how from a very early age, when the child comes to believe that he or she has done something wrong, You see these very visible signs of it. The child hurts their eyes, they hide their head, their cheeks go red. And if this signals a kind of rupture in the intimacy between mother and child, a sign that not all is well in this relationship, then it's also an invitation to make that relationship anew. This just happened recently with us because our kids broke our landlord's window while playing football. Uh Uh-oh. And... (laughs) I actually made them write a a note to the landlord. You're darn right you did. There was this interesting moment where after that, one of my children went into his room and he put his covers over his head. And when I went to talk to him, he said, I am so ashamed. He really verbalized it. And I I was working on this piece too. So I was like, wow, okay, this is an incredible. That really is incredible. Moment. And we hugged and I said, you took responsibility. That is the most important thing that you could do. You were honest and you offered to help repair the window and you have nothing at all to be ashamed of because accidents happen. It was wonderful seeing how this scene, which could have played out very differently with him hiding or being ashamed, then became an opportunity for us to become closer. And I just think those are the kinds of challenges that parenting presents all the time. And they really can be these occasions to take what we read about. A very rarefied kind of theory articulated by a queer theorist like Eve Sedgwick and actually put it into practice in our day-to-day. I love that story about your son. It just makes me respect him more as an evolved person to have those feelings. What we're talking about here is trust. And he trusted you enough to share how he really felt. When I was reading your article about that book and those essays, well, if you're just walking around the house thinking about you just threw your kid in the crib and you want to hurt him, but you're not going to, what does the child have to say? And don't you know that children are so smart and they can intuit all this stuff? So even if they don't consciously think, oh, my parent is making it hard for me to communicate about my feelings, they know it on some level. I think children are much more perceptive than we give them credit for. And I think it would really behoove us, not just as parents, but as human beings, to give them 
a great deal more credit than we give them. It's interesting. There's no good reason why we ought to have power over children. What is it that justifies the power that we have over our children? A friend of mine sent me an article. It's basically about how the only way for parents to justify their authority over their children is to understand their children as their possessions. I thought that was incredibly interesting and I didn't have space for it in this piece, but it does make me want to write something longer about what the grounds are for justifying our ability to control our children. I've always secretly thought if every parent told their kid every day, you're really smart. I'm proud of you. What you're going to be able to do will be amazing. And I love you. If you just said that, in addition to everything else you say to your kid every day, could have this accumulation. I think about that too. I think about how important habit is and how certain habits are intellectual, but other habits are emotional. You say things to your children every day that give them some sense of how you value them and what you value as a person. You model communication for your children and you model your relationship to your own emotions for your children. That's one way in which I think kids really are supremely perceptive. If you model anger, they will imitate it. You model compassion, they will imitate it. And they're always watching. And nobody is perfect, but I do think we would benefit from being a tiny bit more mindful of what we model and what kinds of emotional and conversational habits we set for our children. That's great. Thank you so much. It was really good to see you. It's good to see you too. We'll have to meet up in person one day. So that was amazing, right? I had so much fun with that conversation. So now is when you go read, if you haven't already, Mervy Emre's newest piece in The New Yorker out this week called Mom Rage. And if you're looking for it in the print edition, it appears under the title Mother Trap. And now is when you go to bookshop to buy few of Merve's books. I've put links in the show notes for her books. These three, The Personality Brokers, The Annotated Mrs. Dalloway, and The Ferrante Letters. I'm also going to include a link to the Shapiro Center for Creative Writing and Criticism at Wesleyan University, where Merve is the new director. And starting this fall, she will be hosting on stage a series called The Critic and her publics and those will be recorded and then turned into podcast episodes so if you live on the other side of the world and you can't get there you will be able to hear these important conversations and what i'm sure will be very entertaining conversations so basically i'm including that link to the shapiro writing center at wesleyan so that you can sign up for stuff and just basically dial into Planet Merve. If you want to support the show, go sign up for Kurt Vonnegut Radio at Substack. This show will always be free and for the people. But if you can be a paid subscriber, that is how I pay for my groceries. So click paid subscriber option if you want to ensure that I eat while I make podcast episodes for you. 
I'm not sure I deserve to eat. So I will just let you make that decision. If you want to come say hi online, I'm at Twitter at Gabe Hudson. Also, you can find me on Instagram at Gabe G. Hudson. And if you want to write a review for the show on Spotify or Apple Pod, wherever you get your podcasts, even if you just find them on the street wandering around, stay safe out there, people. And I will see you next time. Peace.